Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. The catastrophic flooding in Germany and neighboring countries, together with record-breaking temperatures in Russia and wildfires raging in Canada and the U.S., led New York Times climate correspondent Somini Sengupta to write, the world as a whole is neither prepared to slow down climate change nor live with it, what the latest climate emergencies reveal. Then, this month marks 30 years since the release of Boys in the Hood. Either they don't know, don't show, or don't care about what's going on in the hood. We reflect on the film's most pivotal moments next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Searches for the missing continue in Germany in the wake of last week's floods that destroyed villages and claimed some 200 lives so far. That disaster, together with wildfires that rage in Canada and here in California and the West, have brought into stark relief for New York Times' Sumini Sengupta. Have brought in stark relief for Sumini Sengupta just how ill-equipped even wealthy countries are to deal with the worst effects of climate change. Welcome to Forum, Sumini. Hi, thanks for having me. Appreciate having you here. And it really has been an intense past couple of weeks for climate emergencies across the globe. And of course, one of the most visible disasters has been this flooding that's killed almost 200 people in Germany in the worst natural disaster there in more than 60 years. Can you tell us what's happened and what's being discussed about the role of climate change in that disaster? Yes, sure. It's a good question. So what happened last week? Well, there was an intense burst of rainfall um, and intense flooding in parts of Germany and uh, neighboring Belgium, parts of the Netherlands. Um, There were warnings that there was going to be this intense burst of rain, but there's some debate now about whether those warnings went out far and wide enough and really whether people paid attention. There's sometimes a sense that, especially in the rich world, in a place like Germany, which is Europe's economic powerhouse, it's got great infrastructure, you know, there's sometimes a sense that it's not as vulnerable to storms, to rains, like, um, you know, places like uh, Mozambique or Bangladesh or or India. Um, In fact, Bangladesh and India have really reduced storm-related deaths precisely by putting in very robust early warning systems. So people are informed, they go into storm shelters, and even if 
property is damaged, it has really reduced the loss of life. And as you know, one uh, scientist at Oxford, Frederica Otto, who is German by origin, as she put it to me last week, she said, the idea that you could possibly die from weather is completely alien hmm. for, for Germans. So it sounds like you are saying that the questions being raised about whether the German authorities adequately warn the public about the risk, that there really is something to that potentially. And it also sounds like you're saying that the risk of flooding at this scale, that it, you know, is something that was foreseeable. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, forecasters absolutely said, look, there is flooding danger. There is, uh, you know, very unusual, intense rains in the forecast. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so, so legitimate questions, I think, are being raised about whether the early warning system was robust enough to save lives and whether people paid attention. Hmm. Um, now, I want to return to an original question you asked, which is what is this have to do with climate change? Well, we know that warmer air holds more moistures. And we know from scientific models that extreme rainfall events are going to be more extreme and more frequent in many parts of the world, which just makes it all the more urgent for our societies to figure out how to adapt to it, including not just by building infrastructure that can withstand these intense bursts of rainfall, but also how to adapt to it in our minds, mm -hmm. how to um, you know, get out of harm's way when the forecast tells you that, there are, uh, that there's danger on the horizon. Yes, your piece that I was really struck by you mentioned there that extreme weather disasters across Europe and North America have driven home two essential facts. And you say that the world as a whole is neither prepared to slow down climate change nor live with it, which I quoted in our billboard. But So it sounds like you're saying that we're really failing on two fronts, preparing for them and dealing with them when they hit. And you quoting Frederica Otto there, I, I'm wondering if you feel like to some degree um, the hubris of these very developed and wealthy nations is contributing to that. Well, let's kind of unpack that, um, that thought. Um, you know, what do I mean when I say we're not prepared to either slow down climate change nor live with the climate that we've already changed? Well, let's kind of rewind and get some facts straight. We know that the combustion of oil, gas, and coal produces greenhouse gases that warm the atmosphere. That's been happening for over a 100 years. Um, there's been a very powerful pushback by fossil fuel industries. There's been well-known disinformation campaigns um, uh, trying to downplay and deny the facts. But, you know, the science is what it is. It's, it's settled science that the burning of fossil fuels creates um, greenhouse gases that warms the planet's atmosphere. And the planet has already warmed by a little over one degree Celsius or nearly two degrees Fahrenheit in the last 100 years. And remember, greenhouse gas emissions are, are cumulative. So everything that's already been thrown up into the atmosphere, the carbon um, dioxide that's been thrown up into the atmosphere is there. And um, it is already you know, war warming global average temperatures. 
Those emissions have been produced largely by rich industrialized countries, the United States, firstly, and Europe and Britain. And since the 1980s, as China has really industrialized and grown, China's emissions have grown very, very rapidly to the point where today China is by far the world's largest emitter. So what does that mean that the planet has warmed by um, a little over one degree Celsius? Like that's the global temperature, uh, average temperature increase. That's the baseline increase. And as the average temperature goes up, we're likely to see prolonged spells of abnormally high temperatures in a bunch of different places. Heat waves uh, are hotter already. They're more frequent. That is likely to continue. So we've seen in the U.S. West, for example, you know, a place like Oregon, Portland, Oregon, I think had a record 116 degrees Fahrenheit a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, in a part of the country that just isn't prepared for um, temperatures that high. In Death Valley, it was 130 degrees in July, which is one of the highest ever recorded temperatures on the planet. The United Kingdom issued its first heat warning this week. A couple of years ago, um, Pakistan, a a city in Pakistan called Nawabshah, hit a record 122 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's happening. These these record-breaking temperatures are happening both in places like the Pacific Northwest that isn't really prepared for these temperatures, but it's also happening in places that are extremely hot and humid where a small increase in temperatures, like in a place like India or Pakistan, mm-hmm. um, where a very small increase in temperature can be really, really deadly to, to human beings. Well, it certainly has felt to me like these, in, these events are intensifying and that they're happening a lot more often. But I was wondering if this was just my perception. Um, so, but it sounds like you're saying, maybe not. Well, it's hard to quantify overall. Um, you know, are are there more extreme events in certain categories? I mean, certainly we're seeing heat records being broken everywhere, and climate change is is really central to that. Um, we're certainly seeing also more extreme rainfall events. So, you know, cyclones, hurricanes, bringing much more intense rains along with it. Uh, We are seeing wildfires uh, so intense that they're creating their own weather, um, as is the case for uh, the bootleg fire. It's creating its own crazy, crazy uh, weather. Yes. I mean, we know that we have that experience and know it so well here. Uh, But it really is quite a grim assessment to think about the fact that, as you say, we're not preparing for them and dealing with them when they hit. And I do wonder why you think that is and whether there is this sense of invulnerability among developed nations that's contributing. Well, so there's two things that the world as a whole has failed to do. On the one hand, um, the world as a whole has not reduced greenhouse gas emissions, even though we have been warned for decades that we need to do so. 
in order to slow down climate change. So on the one hand, we have not reduced emissions. They've kept going up. On the other hand, we have failed to prepare sufficiently for the extreme weather events that we're already seeing. So even if we start slowing down emissions, even if we start cutting emissions radically as we need to do, we still have to adapt uh, to the climate we have already changed. Uh, and that's not happening uh, fast enough. Well, I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. We're talking about the floods in Germany, the global climate emergency, and what Sumis and Gupta has described as the world's richest nations remaining unprepared for the intensifying consequences of climate change. And I'm curious if you, our listeners, have felt similarly or have recent weather-related disasters elevated your concerns about climate change? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also email your thoughts or questions to forum at kqed.org or post them on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Sumini Samgupta is an international climate correspondent at the New York Times. She's also the author of The End of Karma, Hope and Fury Among India's Young. A lot of these, as you say, though, and as you've described, are unprecedented events. It is hard to respond to things you've never experienced before, right? Yes, absolutely. It is hard to respond to extreme weather events that you've never experienced before. In fact, the German chancellor, who's a scientist, Angela Merkel, she had a hard time earlier this week. Uh, she said, you know, the language hasn't quite prepared us um, uh, to, to describe these these. Uh, events. So that explains in part uh, the failure to adapt. There's also the question of money. Um, it does require um, quite a bit of money in in uh, in some instances to uh, to adapt. Yes, and um, we'll get into more of those just right after the break. So many some Gupta, stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Somini Sengupta, international climate correspondent for the New York Times. We're talking about what the floods in Germany and other climate emergencies reveal about developed nations' failure to adapt. And just before the break, Somini Sengupta, you were talking about part of the reason is we lack good communication for this. We, we lack the resources. What else is the problem that you see in terms of our inability or our difficulty, I guess, for lack of mm -hmm. a better word, in terms of mm -hmm. adapting? Um, I mean, I think, as you rightly said, it's hard for um, people to sometimes wrap their brain around the intensity of these extreme events because they haven't experienced it before. Um, uh, some of the times, you know, lawmakers, politicians uh, have to justify um, spending millions and billions of dollars. Um, but, you know, that kind of infrastructure, for example, for more intense floods, you know, your city may not need that infrastructure in the next two to four years when those particular politicians are in office. Um, that is uh, a bit difficult mm. uh, sometimes politically. But I have to point out that a lot of 
climate vulnerable countries in the global south have been pointing out for very many years that um, there is a need to really uh, spend lots of resources. They've been uh, asking for help from the world's rich countries um, to do just this. And uh, that money certainly has not, uh, has not been forthcoming. And I don't know, it remains to be seen, whether these extreme weather events in the rich world will turn that conversation. Hmm. Well, interestingly, you wrote about the parallels that you see in how wealthy countries deal with the COVID crisis and how they deal with the climate crisis. So you talked about how we could learn from the vaccine gap, uh, as you call it, in terms of how wealthy nations view their responsibility and really exercise their interest in trying to help other nations who are trying to deal with the pandemic. Yeah, there are some really interesting parallels between COVID and um, the climate crisis that I have been observing for the last year and a half. One is both COVID, both the pandemic and the climate crisis shows us that, you know, ignoring science, denying science has huge human costs. Secondly, uh, just as COVID blew the lid open on the inequities of race and class and gender in each of our societies, climate change impacts do the same. The impacts of climate change are huge are hugely inequitable. Um, it is what I've described as one of the most profound inequities of our, of our age. Uh, that's the second parallel. The third parallel is, as you, as you said, um, the vaccine gap between rich and poor countries is really a test for how the world as a whole responds to the climate crisis. Rich countries have so far, by and large, failed to see that it's in their interest to urgently help poorer countries vaccinate their people. Uh, there's been a huge debate over patents, over technology transfer. These are issues that also come up for climate solutions. You know, the, um, the failure of the rich world to really pony up and, and mobilize resources uh, to help poorer countries adapt um, and poorer countries, um, you know, shift their, their economies from uh, one that's based on burning fossil fuels to one that's based on renewable energies. So, you know, the, the, the question before us really now, as we are more than a year into this into this pandemic, is what the lessons are going to be going forward. We're talking with Samini Sengupta of The New York Times. 866-733-6786 is the number to call to join the conversation. And Sean in Danville, join us. Hi, Sean. Hi there. I was curious if your guest has heard of the Trillion Trees Project, in which um, the goal is to plant one trillion trees around the world in areas where uh, that can support natural tree growth. And um, according to the journal Science, uh, this would remove the, the vast majority of CO2 that's been added since the Industrial Revolution. So I'm curious if she's heard of it and um, what sort of uh, progress is being made and what can be more done in that area. Sean, thanks. 
Hi, thanks for that question. Um, trees are great. I love trees. Uh, not all trees are the, are the same. Um, and not all trees do the same kind of work uh, to absorb um, uh, emissions. There is really no way to get out of this, this mess um, by planting a mix of trees. Um, and, and why is that? Because there's a big difference between, um, you know, large old forests, like the forests um, in, uh, like the Amazon, like forests in Central Africa, like the boreal forests, you know, not cutting down those forests is uh, the better, <laughs> is the better way to go. Um, uh, yeah. And and secondly, there is um, there is the the science uh, really does not say uh, we can continue to produce as much greenhouse gas emissions uh, as we are now. Um, continue to burn as many fossil fuels as we are now, and the problem will just go away by planting trees. As for the specific target of a trillion trees, that's very am ambitious. I don't know how far along we are, um, but we are not that far along in planting uh, a trillion trees. Trees also take a really long time um, you know, to grow. Well, Sean, I appreciate the question. This listener writes, wealthy countries will not take action until it is far too late to slow or stop climate change. Then they will spend their wealth adapting instead of addressing climate change itself. Hundreds of millions of people will be in a move or starve situation. What will it take to get wealthy countries to take action, Samini Sengupta? I mean, we know that the first, that the European Commission has unveiled a range of proposals to transition away from fossil fuels. I'm wondering if you could describe that. I mean, is that is that a promising answer? Um, this is really a moment of reckoning. Um, by that, I mean, we have waited so long. The world as a, as a whole has waited so long that addressing climate change now requires really swift action. Um, the scientific consensus, which came out in a report now three years ago, uh, says that the best chance of averting the worst impacts of climate change, including massive crop failures, the inundation of coastal cities like San Francisco, the best chance of averting those catastrophes is to reduce emissions by half by 2030. So, you know, scientists basically, when they released that that report, they gave the world 11 years to cut emissions by half. Well, what's happened since that report came out? Emissions have grown. Hmm. This, when I say this is a moment of reckoning, um, I mean uh, there is a uh, a very important global international climate conference coming up this year uh, in November in Glasgow, Scotland. Presidents and prime ministers will gather there to do, um, to really answer this one question, right? Are they all um, uh, going to do what it takes in their own countries to 
reduce emissions, global emissions growth sufficiently to avert those worst consequences. Now, there are a number of proposals on the table. The European Commission last week, as you said, came out with a really ambitious but really concrete roadmap to do that. Um, It included things like by 2035, no more sales of gas and diesel burning cars. It included um, proposals like putting a price on carbon emissions on nearly every single industry. It included a proposal like uh, removing tax breaks for aviation fuel, which stands to make, you know, flights, airline flights more expensive. Now, these are all proposals. Um, There uh, will be months and months of negotiations. There's going to be some pushback by industries and by countries in the European Commission, but that is really a place to, to watch. Similarly, the United States has come out with a very ambitious uh, proposal to reduce its emissions by over 40% uh, by 2030 compared to um, uh, its 1990 levels. And that too is, you know, a, a very ambitious proposal and it remains to be seen as early as this week, whether the Biden administration um, will be able to to do some of that. Um, It depends largely on whether whether Congress, um, you know, passes some of these laws, things Mm -hmm. like, you know, the clean electricity standard, um, things like, you know, the infrastructure package that they're going to vote on this week that includes... um, Lots of money for electric vehicle charging stations, for example. You know, so look, the devil is in these um, legislative um, proposals, both in Europe and in the United States. The other big question, of course, is what's China going to do? There is no way to avert these worst impacts of climate change without um, China really getting on board and, uh, you know, very quickly slowing down its emissions growth. China's pledges remain uh, fairly modest. China's emissions continue to grow. Well, Tom writes, the warnings have been in place for decades. What no one seems to be saying is that what we're seeing now is just the beginning of a future that will be characterized by environmental disaster and a world that may no longer be favorable to human existence. Kim writes, our government has been in turns ignorant, denying and obstructionist and heeding decades of warnings. Congress cannot pass funding bills to deal with the crisis when half of the Congress blocks it due to malicious denial to support their fossil fuel cronies. So what do you think about congressional Democrats' proposal to impose basically a tariff? This is actually something that's similar in the European Commission proposal, impose tariffs on certain imports from countries with less stringent climate protection rules. It's pretty controversial, but could it work? Uh, It is early days for these carbon border tax proposals, both in Europe and in the United States. And there's a big difference between the European Union and the United States proposals. By that, I mean, in the United States, we do not have a carbon price. So there is no price exacted on industries uh, as they emit carbon dioxide or methane into the atmosphere. 
in Europe already, many sectors fall under um, carbon pricing. And last week's European Union big legislative package that we were just talking about would expand carbon pricing to many more sectors. Um, China similarly last week uh, uh, sort of, you know, established its carbon trading system. It applies to a number of industries. So these are sort of the first steps that are being taken in these big economies to price carbon. We don't have that. Uh, the United States doesn't price carbon. However, the proposal that you referred to by the Democrats um, seeks to uh, put a price on carbon on on the on imported goods on the carbon emissions from imported goods. Um, Europe has a similar proposal. It's extremely controversial. It's been um, uh, you know met with opposition, both from China and Russia and the United States, but it really is still early days. Um, these, are, these remain still proposals at this point, um, and there will be lots of um, bickering and negotiations before they become law. Well, let me go to Art in Sacramento. Hi, Art. Hi, Nina. Um, I really appreciate this show, and I have to say I'm considering buying a Prius Prime, and my wife and I were adding up the cost of gas that we spent since the beginning of the year to now, and it's about, I mean, it's more than I expected. It's, and it's, to me, it's like I wonder if we could ask our pension funds and our investment vehicles and endowments, like University of California did back in, what is it, uh, 2017, the lead people there made a conscious decision, not responding to any particular segment of the, you know, population that, that is invested, but simply on purely economic reasons, realizing we have mm -hmm. to do something to divest from fossil fuels. And I think that's, a, that's something that I think if people knew how much their day-to-day -day activities impact the, you know, and, and I'm thinking about how I invested money this morning. And I chose away from fossil fuels and away from tobacco because that's where my there was a there was a vehicle option for investment that was for that. So there was like a, a fund that specifically said minus fossil fuels minus tobacco. And I thought to myself, well, that's the vehicle I want to be in. Yes, the individual level or or making decisions with our wallets, Sumini Sangupta. Sure. Uh, we are all um, making decisions both with our wallets and with our votes. And an effective potential way of getting at some of these things in terms of what we can do. I mean, it's one of those, I think for so many of us, just everything feels so, so big. <laughs> and even Laura asks, please ask your guest how she keeps herself from despairing. And, and we're looking for what we can do <laughs> to try mm -hmm. to, to adapt and save what we have, what we have left. Right. So this question, um, you know, comes up quite often, you know, is this a problem that I as an individual can address? Or is this um, a problem that requires systemic change alone. In some ways, that may be a false distinction. There may be lots of things that um, your listeners may want to do um, 
to first understand the problem better, um, and second, uh, see where they would like to uh, make a difference in their in their lives, in their purchasing decisions, um, in in their votes, not just in in the big national elections, but also in you know local decision making. At questions of adaptation can sometimes come down to the decisions that are being made in your community. Um, by your, you know, planning commission, by your zoning officials, uh, by what kind of development decisions are being made in, in your city or, or county. So some of these problems, or rather some of the solutions to um, living with a climate we have already changed might actually be closer to home than you think. Well, so many Sengupta, we're so glad to have you on with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments and Susan Britton for producing this segment. Stay with us. We'll be talking 30th anniversary of Boys in the Hood next. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.